today on Ag News Daily. So I focus on the ones that are feeding on the roots of plants and causing those plants to suffer in terms of growth and yield. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Delaney Howell, one of the hosts for the Ag News Daily Podcast, joined by my co-host, Mike Pearson. Mike, what do you know today? Well, Delaney, I know that we've got some green on the screen as I'm looking at the markets. USDA came through with perhaps a little bit of an early Christmas present today. We had a, I guess, good USDA report today, huh? A report that was not as bearish as people right. anticipated, which in this environment, you know, hey, a push is a win, Delaney. We'll take it. A <laughs> push is a win, as we learned at gambling, right? No, we don't gamble, Delaney. <laughs> Good Christians. I, I overheard that at church. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. So, some other sinner must have learned that <laughs> while gambling. Oh, oh gosh. But no, we did. We got uh, got the USDA WASDE report out earlier today and generally positive. Um, I've got the numbers handy. Delaney, what do you say? Yeah. Should we run through them? Yep, let's do it. Perfect. So basically the, the big news in corn was that the crop came in at 14.778 billion bushels. And the that means the average yield was brought down from analysts' expectations, still a record. USDA pegs us growing a average national yield of 180.7 bushels per acre, whereas analysts were figuring we'd be at 181.8. So we're about a bushel under, 90 million bushels total, what analysts were expecting. Soybeans, good news here, you know, good and bad. The good news is that production was brought down. Uh, it was pegged at 4.69 billion bushels, down from analyst expectations of 4.733 billion. Again, another national average record yield of 53.1, but down from analyst expectations of 53.3. The reason I say it's good and bad news is because of the reason they brought it down. We've complained quite a bit about the wetness across the northern and western Corn Belt, and the USDA took that into consideration. They say we are going to see fewer harvested acres in Iowa and Minnesota, predominantly due to the moisture. So that's the bad news there. If you're in that territory, you, of course, know what those beans look like. They don't look fantastic. But that's what gave us the, the little bit of the price bounce we saw today, Delaney. Well, also, I mean, we've seen some really wet weather or snowy weather in the Dakotas. I've talked to a couple of producers on Twitter, and they have either, like, had a couple of days in the field or zero days in the field and now have snow in parts of North and South Dakota. Yeah, six inches in yeah. some parts of North Dakota. And you know what? I love the Dakotas. God bless the people that live up there. But I, I don't think there is an amount of money you could pay me <laughs> to move me that far north where I yeah. could get snow in uh, in early October. Yeah, that's crazy. I, I was talking to one today and it's like, OK, well, I'm not going to pl- complain about having like wet, crappy weather because at least we don't have snow. Right. It's 42 degrees here, which is not fun, but hey, yeah. it's better than sub-32 and yeah. wading through a snowdrift. But, yeah, jeez. Uh, Oof. Yeah, that tops off the uh, USDA news. Delaney, yeah. we'll get to the markets, of course, here in a little bit. But what other news should we be discussing today on the podcast? I think we also need to discuss the extreme weather that's happening on our East Coast. We've seen, Holy cow. yeah, we've seen um, the second round or second big hurricane here hit the Florida Panhandle. Hurricane Michael hit yesterday, Wednesday, and now it's heading to Georgia. Farmers in the Carolinas are also preparing to be hit. 
Um, it was a Category 4 hurricane when it touched landfall in the hurricane panhandle, but now it's been downgraded to a Category 1 storm as it moves up to the southern parts of Georgia. Um, the, the cotton, I think, is the big issue there. Less than 10% of cotton has been harvested in Georgia and the Carolinas as of last week, according to the USDA. And that number has likely gone up since then with growers racing to get in acres ahead of the storm, but still probably not much higher with wet weather that they've been having. And that part of the country, that southeast part of the country, accounts for about 30% of total U.S. cotton production. Absolutely. Cotton's going to be a big one. And Delaney, as you mentioned yesterday, cattle production. When this storm hit Florida, winds were moving in excess of 150 miles an hour as it sped across the panhandle. And there are a lot of cow-calf producers Mm -hmm. and ranchers from the Florida panhandle up into Georgia. So listeners, if you're in that part of the country, if you're raising cattle, we'd love to hear from you. If there's anything we can do to help or or rally our listeners to do to help, we know they're here uh, wanting to do their part. The other interesting thing I was going to say about this Um, It's a little more lighthearted, not that I'm trying to make light of the situation that's going on, but I think it was our good friend Max Armstrong shared a photo on Twitter um, that said because of the pressures they've been having in that part of the country, bottles of wine are like uncorking themselves and exploding in grocery stores and wine stores. Wow. I know. That's crazy, huh? Yeah. So it must be low pressure outside and the pressure inside the wine bottle then is forcing the cork out right i don't know i guess i think so i think that's what it's doing okay because they say in a tornado or i was told as a kid now of course meteorologists corrected this but i used to be told if a tornado was coming open the windows Mm -hmm. otherwise your your house will still be a high Mm. pressure zone the air outside will be low and it'll cause your house to explode that blew my mind as a kid but i I don't know i don't think it's accurate um yeah, I, I'm not sure that that sounds accurate, but I, I, I don't no, know. No, I'm, I'm pretty sure smarter people have since told me <laughs> that that might not entirely be true. Okay. But I do have some news here coming from President Donald Trump. Delaney and I, of course, are quite familiar with the president now after having attended one of his rallies. But um, he launched a tirade against the Fed. Of course, as the economy has continued to strengthen, the Federal Reserve has been incrementally tightening rates. And President Trump called it a loco policy. Hmm. And he said that uh, these interest rate increases are ridiculous. And it's making it more expensive for his administration to finance deficits. Uh, President Trump said, quote, I'm paying interest at a high rate because of our Fed. And I'd like our Fed to not be so aggressive because I think they're making a big mistake. And he said that this morning in an interview on Fox and Friends. And Delaney, mm-hmm. rates are still pretty low, but I'm guessing a lot of growers, given the... Uh, financial environment we're in would probably like to see the fed work on cutting rates again as well yeah i'm guessing you're probably right mike yeah well Well, so that's an update there well speaking of trade deficit or trade surplus we have seen a positive trade balance for the month of august compared to previous months um and in particular i'm talking about soybeans So, uh, of course, we saw in August China cut their soybean purchases by nearly half to less than 68,000 metric tons, which they're usually importing about 1.2 million tons a year. But the European Union has picked up some slack. They've quadrupled soybean purchases to 921,000 metric tons in August compared to their usual 215,000 tons, which is what they imported in August. 
And because of that, we've seen also increases in Mexico and Indonesia. But overall, the U.S. exported $10.98 billion worth of agricultural goods in August compared to imports of $10.362 billion. So we've seen a positive trade balance for ag for the month of August at about $618 million. Well, I've got some other news. It's great to see some crops uh, leaving our shores. I've got some news from down in Brazil. Brazilian growers, according to the USDA's Foreign Agricultural Service, are expected to grow 75.5 million metric tons. Now, that is a larger crop than last year, and it is a record crop, but it's really only up half a million metric tons from this last year. So, so, so Brazilian growers aren't turning to plant soybeans in a huge amount any more than uh, they would have probably in an ordinary year. But I want to ask our interviewees today, Delaney, while we're talking soybean cyst nematodes, are they a concern down in Brazil? Hmm. I don't know. Or is it regional, like geographically located? Right. Or Yeah. So hmm. we'll have to talk to uh, Caitlin Bissonette about that here during our interview. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. So um, I have some other, I guess, agronomy-related news. When you look at dicamba usage in particular, a federal judge in Missouri has scheduled the first trial in a multi-district litigation against dicamba um, made by Bayer Ag, Monsanto, and BASF, saying that they caused crop damage and drifting over the fields. This case in particular in Missouri is coming from a peach grower Bader Farms, which alleges that the companies conspired to create an ecological disaster, ecological disaster. Um, and so that will be starting here in 2019. The, the trial will be starting in October of 2019. Well, we knew this kind of lawsuit was going to happen once those damage reports started coming in. We will have to keep a close eye on this and see what sort of precedent gets set as this case moves the, towards, um, I guess, a settlement, yeah, perhaps, or probably whatever. Settlement. But my thought is, like, the way that they worded it, that it's an ecological disaster and that they forced it or whatever the word there was. Yeah. That makes it seem a little bit, I don't know, not fishy, but it's like, I don't think that Bear or Monsanto set out with the with the goal in mind. Right. Of like, let's oh, let's destroy these yeah. guys' peaches. Right. But at the same time. You always want to go into court with the most powerful hand you have. Absolutely. I know. You know. Well, Delaney, I am all out of news today. I'm excited to talk soybean cyst nematodes here. But uh, first, should we get to the markets, or do you have more news? Let's do the markets, Mike. All right, folks, and our markets are brought to us by our friends at the Zaner Group. Remember, get in touch with them. Put a plan in place, manage your marketing risk, and they can help you do all of those things. You can reach them at 312-277-0050 or find them on the web at zaner.com. And as we take a look, as I mentioned, we've got green and corn and soybeans today with the December corn contract up six and a half cents at 369 and a quarter. The March also up six and a half at 381 and a quarter. In soybeans, the November up six cents closed at 858 and a quarter. The January up six and a half to finish at 872 and a half. Strength didn't carry over into the wheat market. Chicago, December wheat down two and a half cents at 508 even. The March down two, closed at 529 and a quarter. Looking over on the livestock side, despite the strength in corn futures, we did see strength in the uh, cattle complex here. October live cattle up 55 cents at 112.62 and a half. The December 
up 30 at 116.7750. In feeder cattle, the October up 82.5 cents at 156.72.5. The November up 57.50 to close at 156.75. And mixed trade in lean hogs with the October up 20 cents at 68.6750. Well, the December was down a dollar 52.5. Finished the day at 54.42 and a half. And a quick look at the dairy market in Class Three milk. That October contract dropped eight cents at 15.67. Well, November was down 11 at 15.78. Now, let's get into talking soybean cyst nematodes with our first interview, Greg Tilka from Iowa State. Well, folks, we're talking today with a nematologist. We're speaking with Greg Tilka. He is a plant professor at Iowa State University. We're talking nematodes, SCN soybean cyst nematodes. Now, Greg, you're doing a lot of research on this. It's a huge problem across, well, every soybean acre, it sounds like. Tell us, what are you researching specifically? Well, Mike, we're, we're looking at several dis- different facets of the pathogen um, from where it occurs, what affects the numbers in terms of its buildup, how it causes damage, how it reproduces on resistant soybean varieties, and how these new protectant, nematode protectant seed treatments might help farmers combat uh, this number one soybean pathogen in the U.S. Greg, I think I want to back up here just a step. Mike likes to get ahead of us, ahead of ourselves sometimes. Let's talk about what SCN is or soybean cyst nematodes. Can you explain to us what that is and what producers see when they get those in their fields? Sure thing, Delaney. And that, that's a question I find myself answering a lot at cocktail parties when I get asked <laughs> the question, what do I do for a living? So, <laughs> So um, nematodes, let's start at the very basic. Nematodes are microscopic worms that live in the soil, and actually they live in freshwater and seawater as well. Um, We're interested in the ones that live in the soil, and not all of the nematodes in the soil feed on plants and cause damage. But again, I'm in the Department of Plant Pathology and Microbiology, so I focus on the ones that are feeding on the roots of plants and causing those plants to suffer in terms of growth and yield. Now, soybean cyst nematode is among the most damaging of all nematodes that feed on plants, and that's due to several aspects of its biology. Um, It reproduces relatively quickly. In about every 28 to 30 days, we get a new generation, and so Mm -hmm. it builds up numbers pretty quickly. Um, It also feeds on the vascular tissue of the roots, and so it makes the roots of infected soybean plants unable to move water and nutrients back and forth. And that really causes a crisis in terms of damage in hot, dry years. And then the final thing I'll mention, I don't mean to be too nerdy with you on (laughs) nematode biology. No, nerd it up. That's what we're here for. (laughs) Well, be careful what you ask for. Um, So the the soybean cyst nematode worm eventually swells up into a lemon-shaped female that fills up with eggs. And she actually gets so big that she pops out of the root and she's on the surface of the root. And those eggs within the female, eventually she dies and her body makes a tough shell around the eggs called a cyst. That's the middle name, Mm. soybean cyst nematode. And some of those eggs can live 10 years or more dormant without a soybean crop being grown. So it's like a permanent pest that just gets established in the fields. And unless you stop growing soybeans for decades, 
you're never going to get rid of it. So it, wow. it's a really nasty critter based on its biology. Now, Greg, I, I want to follow up on that final point. It's a it's a constant threat here in soybean country. Why don't we just have a chemical that just kills them? Why can't we just kill them and be done with it? Well, that's a that's a good question, Mike, and it's a good goal to to kind of shoot for. But um, there's a couple reasons. One is um, it's incredibly difficult to kill all of anything in the soil. The soil is so deep and expansive that it's it's extremely difficult if if you had something really potent to be able to eliminate uh, the nematode or anything else. The other thing is we got to keep in mind that if we came up with a chemical that did a good job of killing the nematode, we, we probably wouldn't want to use it because it likely would kill all the good nematodes that are in the soil as well. And so um, Mother Nature is very difficult to battle, and she usually wins the battle. And so we just have to hope to kind of lessen or mitigate the, the effects of soybean cyst nematode and maximize crop production in fields that have soybean cyst nematode. I, I don't think we're ever really going to beat this uh, into oblivion. I think we need to learn to coexist and, and figure out how to grow soybeans profitably in fields that have the nematode. Oh, Greg, I want to go back to a point there. You said good nematodes, so there's good nematodes and there's bad nematodes? Absolutely, they are. There are more good nematodes than bad nematodes. Um, some nematodes eat bacteria and fungi, and some break down organic matter. Some cycle nutrients, and so nematodes in general in the soil are a big part of the nutrient cycling and the food web. And and there are way more good nematodes than bad mm. nematodes in the soil. But if you've got a field with a raging infestation of soybean cyst nematode, you might not agree with that statement. But um, th there are there are some there are really they're involved in the ecosystem of the soil, involved in a beneficial way. So now, Greg, let's talk protection. If I'm noticing that I have a serious SCN problem this year, of course, we did have that dryness in in August throughout much of the the northern Corn Belt. It was especially mm -hmm. bad in Missouri. What steps should I be taking? What are some of the newer tools out there for me to look at going into this next spring? Well, the... the uh, there are tools. There's there's not um, uh, a toolbox full of new things, but there's some existing things that we want farmers to use in addition to the new tools that, to provide kind of a comprehensive approach to managing cyst nematode. We call that an integrated pest management approach. And so um, one useful piece of information is soybean cyst nematode has a relatively narrow host range, meaning that it really only is able to feed and reproduce on soybeans and a few other edible types of beans that might come into play in the northern corn and soybean belt up in North Dakota and Minnesota. But the other mainstream field crops in the Midwest corn, of course, um, get down into Missouri cotton and southern Illinois, perhaps cotton. None of those others are host. And so any year that a farmer grows a non-host crop, not soybeans in other words, um, some of the eggs are going to hatch out and starve, 
and numbers will drop. And so it, it does uh, a field good to not have soybeans in it every year. That's going to lower the numbers. But of course, we want the United States to be a, a primary soybean producing country. And so we want to keep soybeans in the rotation. And that's where resistant soybean varieties come in. Now, the diff- go ahead, Delaney. Oh, no, I was just going to say that's interesting. Oh, and so the resistant varieties have really kept us in business because there are hundreds of different varieties to pick from for farmers, and they've been available for 20 or 30 years. And I'm, it's really not a cliche when I say I don't think we would be growing soybeans as widespread as we are um, in the United States if it weren't for these resistant soybeans. But there was a fatal or is a fatal flaw in those resistant varieties in that Almost all of them contain the same set of resistance genes. And you might, and your listeners might be able to figure out the nature of that flaw. But when I present this to farmers, I say, can you imagine what would happen if we used a single herbicide for 20 years or more? And a lot of the farmers start to giggle and the light bulbs go off. And of course, I'm alluding to weeds becoming resistant to herbicides. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what's happening with soybean cyst nematode. It's becoming resistant to the resistance. Interesting. Resistance to the resistance. Yeah, Greg, that's a mouthful. It is a little bit of a mouthful. Before we let you go, if producers have questions about how to identify this in their field or just want to follow up with you about some of the stuff you shared with us today, where should they head? Well, there is this national effort called the SCN Coalition that is organizing management information, contact information. There is a map with, you can click on each state to find the experts there. The website is thescncoalition.com. So no spaces in there, just thescncoalition.com and click on the map. Uh, look for the local expert. There's um, local soil testing lab information and so forth. Awesome, Greg. Well, we definitely appreciate you filling it in and giving it to us in a layman's perspective. Oh, my pleasure. It was great talking to you both. Well, we're also going to be talking with Caitlin Bissonette, who is an extension assistant extension professor at the University of Missouri. Caitlin, we talked to Greg a little bit about his research, but let's hear your quick thoughts here. What when you look at SCN as a whole, what research have you really focused on uh, with this disease? Some of the research that I've conducted has focused on SCN seed treatments. I actually, ironically enough, did my postdoc with Greg at Iowa State, and so that's where I did a lot of my work with him. Um, But down here in Missouri, I've kind of continued some of that work because we have very different soil conditions as well as environmental conditions and As everybody knows, soil can vary from field to field, and so understanding how a product or how management can actually work in a field can differ by region. And that kind of leads into one of the things that Greg mentioned just as we were getting ready to go, which was that when we're looking at SCN-resistant varieties of soybeans, they all have the same resistance, uh, regardless of the soil we're planting it in, regardless of the nematode pest pressure, we're, we're effectively planting the exact same thing in every resistant acre. What does that mean for the long-term sustainability of resistant varieties? What that really means is that SCN is becoming resistant 
to the resistance. If we continue to plant the same variety over and over again, the pest will recognize that resistance, much like with glyphosate. When we continued to apply glyphosate over time, the weeds were able to identify that it was glyphosate and overcome that resistance. We're seeing the same problems with SCN and resistant varieties. So, Caitlin, what needs to happen or what can happen if we're seeing resistance to the resistance? Am I, I don't know if I'm saying that quite right there, resistance to the resistance. But if we continue to see that, if we see this SCN resisting the treatment, what happens or what can happen? So what can happen is we see reductions in yield, and sometimes they're very subtle to begin with, but over time the populations that have overcome resistance in the soil continue to build, and that yield reduction continues to increase. There is actually a point at which you can lose up to 14 bushels per acre, Mm. which is a lot of money Yeah, if you continue to build up those populations in the soil. And now that is coming from the resistant varieties, so that is a genetic trait. Now, you mentioned you've done research with seed treatments, which, of course, would be a different mode of action, a way to help curb the impact of SCN. Tell us, what have you seen there? What have you studied? And what should growers be thinking about as it comes time to order our seeds with or without treatment? Really, the first line of defense is always a resistant soybean variety. Regardless of whether or not it has that PI88788 source of resistance, which is that single source that is commonly used, whether it has that or not for resistance, that is the first line of defense, so that is always to be used. Adding a SCN seed treatment can be considered in some situations, especially in situations where other diseases may be occurring in tandem where that seed treatment is also effective. One example being sudden death syndrome in soybeans can Mm. be very severe in certain parts of the Midwestern U.S. And sometimes considering a seed treatment to control SDS can also uh, have effectiveness at times on SCN. So, Caitlin, with using soybean treatments, like DSCN, um, will that help prevent yield loss or prevent, or I guess provide extra yield, or do you see any sort of economic benefit there? The economic benefit of seed treatments really varies by year, by soil type, by location. There's a lot of factors that go into it. Um, So I wouldn't necessarily talk primarily in terms of money. The way that I look at it would be with seed treatments and resistant varieties and crop rotation. All of those management recommendations really lead us to preventing problems in the future. So we're trying to reduce those populations in the soil today so that 1, 2, 5, 10, 15 years from now, we're not seeing the levels of yield loss that we are starting to see now. And, Caitlin, you said crop rotation in there. Of course, we ordinarily think of changes in crop rotation with growers looking at perhaps a corn-on-corn, but in a tight economic environment, some growers might, to save costs, be looking at doing bean-on-bean ground or bean-on-bean again in some cases. And what specific concerns should they be aware of before they make that plan? 
concerns to be aware of if you're planting soybean after soybean primarily is looking at which resistant varieties are being used. Populations of SCN can build up as a result of using the same resistant variety over and over again, much like using the same resistant source. So it's important to actually rotate resistant varieties, even if they have the same source of resistance, and especially when you're planting soybean repeatedly. Another point that I want to emphasize is if if soybeans are being planted repeatedly, testing for SCN and looking at what those numbers are in your soil before planting that next round is going to be vitally important. Absolutely. Vitally important makes sense. Caitlin, thank you so much for taking the time to share with us your research and perspective on SCN. Well, thank you for having me. Well, thank you to both Greg and Caitlin. Interesting stuff, Mike. I'm glad that they were able to explain it in kind of more of a layman's perspective because I didn't really know. I didn't know how this was going to go before we set it up talking about (laughs) some larger agronomy uh, terms here. Yeah, yeah. For non-agronomists, it's always good to have uh, confident people who can explain things in a way we can understand. But that's kind of what we shoot for here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. So if you want to learn about other stuff, you can always check out our past episodes on the web at agnewsdaily.com or find us on social media. Just search for Ag News Daily on Facebook and Twitter and we'll be there. And with that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.